0: The Christmas season is a time of preparation and anticipation. And it feels a little early, right, to be talking about Christmas just right after Thanksgiving, but that season is upon us and uh, so what we're going to do over the next few weeks is take a break from our series of sermons through the Gospel of John and we're going to be looking at the first chapter of Luke as well as uh, the first part of Luke chapter 2 over the next several weeks as we lead up to Christmas and prepare our hearts and build anticipation in our own lives uh, for the celebration of the birth of Christ. Now, uh, preparation, if you think about it, takes up a significant portion of our lives. Preparation for a career. Can take years of school or apprenticeship or both. Uh, Preparation for retirement can take not only years but decades of saving money little by little. And despite how long preparation takes, and most of us are not patient by nature, right? So the, the long preparation can be difficult at times. Most of us, though, at least like the opportunity to prepare. Nobody wants to show up for a job that nobody's ever told them how to do and feel unprepared. Uh, I suspect most couples, when they have their first child especially, are grateful for those nine months you have to prepare your home and prepare your heart and prepare your life for welcoming this little child uh, into your family. And preparation like that creates a sense of anticipation. You anticipate graduation after years of school. You anticipate starting a new job. You anticipate welcoming your first child. You anticipate reaching retirement in part because you have prepared for those things for so long. Preparation also takes up a significant portion of the scripture. It's not necessarily how we often think about it, but The Old Testament is mainly a story of preparation. It's preparing the people of God through promises and events for the day when God would finally send His Son into the world to bring salvation. The Old Testament, in other words, is preparation for the New Testament. The Old Testament is full of promises about the coming of the Messiah that God gave hundreds and even thousands of years before Jesus entered the world born as a baby. And when we get to the New Testament even, there's one more season of preparation. we're going to look this morning at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. And what is particularly interesting about Luke is that Luke does not sort of rush into the, the life and ministry of Jesus like Mark does in his Gospel. He doesn't even go more or less immediately into the birth of Jesus, or at least the promise of the birth of Jesus like Matthew does in his Gospel, Instead, Luke invites us into the period of final anticipation right before the arrival of Jesus. There's almost sort of an overlap here in the beginning of Luke with the Old Testament and the New Testament. So listen along with me, if you would, as I read from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 5 to 25. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. So Luke introduces us to this story by setting the stage. It happens in the days of Herod, who's the king of Judea, and the main characters at this point are an older couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now Zechariah and Elizabeth are both from the tribe of Levi. They're Levites. They de- descend from Aaron. Uh, and uh, Zechariah or, or uh, she descends from the daughters of Aaron, and uh, they are uh, Zechariah is a priest now he 's not the high priest, right he, but he is one of the priests who has been set aside by the Lord to serve in the temple and we 're told about this couple in verse six that they were both righteous and that they walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, it's important that we don't misunderstand that. To say that they walked blamelessly does not mean that they were sinless. does not mean that they were perfect. does not mean they never did anything wrong. What it does mean is that Zechariah and Elizabeth were the kind of people that if you watched their lives, you could tell they were committed to doing what the Lord said. They were committed to following the Lord. They didn't always do it perfectly, but they were godly people. They st- were striving to honor God in all that they did. It's the same kind of thing that God says about Job. You remember in the book of Job, and from the very beginning we're told that Job was a blameless and righteous man. And even when the the sons of God come before the Lord to present themselves before him, God speaks to Satan and says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? But God wasn't saying that Job was sinless. Even if other people might have thought that about Job, God knew better. And yet God does affirm that Job is a blameless and upright man because he feared the Lord and he sought to honor the Lord and to avoid evil. Paul said the same thing about himself in Philippians 3 when he was describing what kind of person he was before he came to Christ. He said, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Again, Paul's not... Claiming sinlessness. But he is saying, I spent my life seeking to do all that God had commanded. A part of why it's so important that we know what kind of people Zechariah and Elizabeth were is because of what it says next in verse 7. It says, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. In other words, Zechariah and Elizabeth were blameless, godly people. And yet they couldn't have children. And the reason they could not have children was not because they had sinned in some way that God was punishing them for. their, Their barrenness, their childlessness was not a direct result of their own sin. Remember, this is the lesson of the book of Job. That the suffering that people experience, is you cannot draw a straight line between their suffering and their sin. The world just does not work that way. You can't say, oh, something terrible is happening in your life. You must have done something wrong to deserve that. That's what Job's friends kept telling him. And he kept insisting that wasn't true. And we might not believe Job, except for God himself said at the beginning of the book that Job was a blameless and upright man. We have to be careful, both as we examine our own lives and we examine other people's lives, that we don't confuse our circumstances with God's verdict on our life. If you're experiencing trials, difficulties, tribulations, that does not... Mean God's mad at you. If you're going through hardships, you've got unanswered prayers, it doesn't mean that God's not listening to you. It may just be that He's saying, I'll I'll take care of that in time, but I want you to learn to wait and trust me. Part of it is just that we live in a fallen world, people get sick. Uh, people get cancer. People go through hardships. They lose their jobs. They lose their reputation unjustly. But Hard things happen with their kids. I mean, families get broken. All kinds of things happen, not necessarily a result of our individual sin, but because we live in a world that is fallen because of the original sin, because of the first sin. So don't confuse your suffering or anybody else's with God's verdict on your life. Because if you do, you might be severely misreading the situation. Anybody who thought that Zechariah and Elizabeth were barren because they were ungodly was wrong. And yet, there's another layer to Elizabeth's barrenness that builds anticipation in this story. If we are familiar with the stories of the Old Testament, then as we hear about uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth's childlessness and Elizabeth's barrenness, we start to recall significant stories from the Old Testament. Stories like the story of Abraham and Sarah. Sarah was barren. Abraham and Sarah were old by the time they had their first son, Isaac. But God had promised them they would have one. And God kept his promise, and Isaac was born to them in their old age. And then when Isaac got married, he married a woman named Rebekah, who was also barren. Isaac pleaded with God, and God heard his prayer and gave Rebekah not just one son, but two, Jacob and Esau. And then Jacob's wife, Rachel, was also barren. But God provided for her and Jacob as well, and she gave birth to Joseph and Benjamin. So when we read about this godly couple who have no child and are advanced in years, we start to think, usually when the Bible tells us a story like this, something exciting is about to happen. Something good is about to take place. And that's exactly what happens. In fact, in the Old Testament... Um well let me let me come back to that. I don't want to get ahead of myself. We'll we'll save that. Okay. So verse 8 says Zechariah was serving as priest before God. His vision was on duty. He so he went into the temple. He's supposed to burn incense and while he's there something totally unexpected happened that scares Zechariah, and that is he sees an angel of the Lord standing next to the altar. Now, because the Bible is so compressed, right, there's so many stories that were told that happen over thousands of years, you can start to think like, well, every other day an angel appears to somebody, right? No. Very rare. Right? Highly unexpected. It does happen occasionally, and almost without exception, maybe without exception, when an angel shows up, People are surprised and people are scared, right? And that's what happens to Zechariah. He does, he does not think, oh good, I've been waiting for the day when an angel would show up while I'm on duty in the temple. Now I can ask him all my questions. No, he's, he's like thinking, what happens next? <laughs> you know, well, what is this about? What are you going to say? What's going to happen to me? So he's scared, but the angel tells him not to be afraid. And he gives him good news. He says in verse 13, he says, Your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So Zechariah evidently has been praying, as he would expect, that God would give he and Elizabeth a child. And the angel says, I'm here To tell you that God has heard your prayer. Now how long do you think Zechariah had been praying that prayer? He and his wife were old by this time. The first time he prayed that prayer was probably decades ago. Do you think there were some periods in Zechariah's life where he thought, Is it even worth asking for this anymore? Uh, Should I even keep praying for this anymore? But not only Zechariah, but I imagine there are people all over this room who could testify to the fact that you can pray for something for years, even for decades, and go through periods where you think, I don't even know if it's worth praying for this anymore. And then one day, when you least expect it, God comes through and answers that prayer. Anybody have that experience? Yeah, I thought so, right? Keep praying. Keep praying, because God does hear you. That child, that grandchild you've been praying for for years and you wonder, is anything ever going to come of this? Keep praying. Right? Whatever that thing is in your life, whatever that burden is that you're carrying, that thing that you, you've prayed for a hundred times, don't stop praying for it. Don't stop praying for that person. Don't stop praying for that situation. There's nothing that's too hard for the Lord. He just doesn't operate on our schedule. He doesn't always do things at the time we wish that he would. But it doesn't mean he doesn't care. It doesn't mean he doesn't have a plan. It doesn't mean he doesn't hear. It doesn't mean he can't. It might just mean it's not time yet. And he wants you to trust him while you wait. So the angel says, you're going to have a son. And not just you're going to have a son, you're going to have... A son who is significant, who is great, who has a a tremendous role to play in God's plan. He tells him that people are going to rejoice at his birth. He's going to be great before the Lord, verse 15. Uh, Verse 16, he's going to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Uh, He says in verse 15 again that he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. This also has Old Testament echoes, because in the Old Testament, the first person that's ever said to be filled with the Spirit of God is Joseph, and Joseph was born to Rachel, who had been barren. Also, Rebecca, who was barren, and Isaac prayed, and God opened her womb, and she conceived and gave birth to twins, Jacob and Esau. Even while they were in the womb, God told her, I've got a special plan for the younger one. The older is going to serve the younger. In John's case, both of those things are true, that John is set apart in the womb and that he is filled with the Spirit like Joseph, but in this case, filled with the Spirit even in his mother's womb. From the beginning, before his birth, God had a special plan for John, and that plan was this, that he was going to prepare the way for the coming of God's own Son into the world. That's why in verse 16 he says, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, And then in verse 17, he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. The angel doesn't tell us he's citing scripture, but Luke expects us to pick it up. And in the book of Malachi, the very last verses of that book, which in our Old Testament is are the last words of the Old Testament. Malachi says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. In other words, John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the promise of the coming of Elijah before the coming of the day of the Lord, the Messiah who would come into the world. And his job, when he comes, as Gabriel says, in the spirit and power of Elijah, so it's not that John is Elijah come back, he is an Elijah like figure, right? A prophet like Elijah who comes in the same spirit of Elijah, the same power. As Elijah. Uh, he even dresses like Elijah. And he wears that camel hair cloak and leather belt, dressing like Elijah himself did in the Old Testament. He has come right, to prepare the way for the Lord, and the way he does that is by telling people to repent, to turn back. Turn back to the Lord. And also to turn the hearts of fathers to the children. For people to get ready through repentance. That's John's job. To help people get ready through repentance as he prepares them for the coming of God in the flesh. That's always a good way to prepare for the Lord to move. That's always a good response no matter what's going on. To remember that in all the ways we've strayed from the Lord, we need to repent. We need to turn back. When we go astray, that leads to destruction. But when we turn back, God gives life. New life. Now, Zechariah, scared as he may have been, could not have asked for a better announcement. When he went into the temple that day. But Zechariah's story reminds me why I'm glad that no part of my life story is written down anywhere in the Bible for everybody to read for hundreds and hundreds of years. Because in this moment, Zechariah blunders badly. So badly. He does not say, Thank you, Lord, for answered prayer. He does not say, That's amazing. I can't figure out how you're going to do that, but I'm so glad that God is going to do it. He basically says to Gabriel, how can I trust you? How can I know you're telling me the truth? Just a little word of the wise. Don't ever say that to Gabriel. (laughs) Zechariah said to the angel, verse 18, how shall I know this? Now, this is different from when Mary hears that she's going to have a child, and she says, how will this be? So there's a difference between saying, I don't know how you're going to do it, and saying, how do I know you're going to do what you just said? Those two things are very different. It's subtle, but it's significant. So he says, how shall I know this? After all, I'm an old man. And my wife is advanced in years. So Gabriel says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. Think about who's talking to Zechariah an angel that he was terrified of a moment ago. Now he's questioning him. Where is he? He's in God's own temple. Receiving this message. Everything about this circumstance ought to say to Zechariah, even if your little brain, our little brains can't figure this out, you just go with it. You just believe that God can do it, right? That's how you're supposed to respond. But He doesn't. And so Gabriel says, and here's the consequence for your unbelief. You're not going to be allowed to talk or able to talk until what I said comes to pass. Then you'll be able to speak. This event creates more anticipation because Zechariah is in the temple longer than he's supposed to be. Everybody knows how long it takes to offer incense and then you come back out and they're starting to you know, look at their watches as it were. You know, think, Where is this guy? What's going on? And then not only has he been in there too long but when he comes out it becomes clear he can't talk. And so the people realize he's seen something. Something happened in there, but he can't tell them what it was. You can imagine the kind of stir that would create among the crowd. After his time of service ended, verse 23, he went home. Elizabeth conceived, just like Gabriel had said she would. She kept herself hidden for a time and said, verse 25, thus the Lord has done for me. Now whether or not Zechariah was finally able to communicate to Elizabeth what God had told him, I suspect he probably had. Later he uses a like a chalkboard essentially to name his sons. So probably they figured something out. But whether he told her or not, Elizabeth understands what's going on. This has to be the Lord. There's no other explanation. Right? You may have had things in your life that may or may not be this dramatic that you can look back and say I, I just know that would not have happened could not have happened if God had not done it. That's what Elizabeth recognizes. The good news for Ze- Zechariah and Elizabeth that they're going to have a son who's going to prepare the way for the Messiah himself is just a prelude though to the even better news that's coming when there's a group of shepherds minding their own business one night just working just doing their jobs and a group of angels shows up and says I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people the Lord is coming in this day in the city of David Savior has been born who is Christ the Lord he came to the earth not only to live but to die to rise so that we might live, so that we might have our sins forgiven, that's the good news I just hope you don't respond to it like Zechariah responded to his good news even if you do at first God's merciful believe what he says Trust him. He can do anything. There's nothing that's too hard for the Lord.